Do you know what the number one most distributed product in the world is? I'll give you a hint. More than 10,000 of it are consumed every second around the world. And did you know that the Santa Claus you know and love came from this company? I'm talking about the company which makes my favorite drink in the world, Diet Coke. Let me open happiness. What's up everybody, Jen, ex-dividend investor here. Today in my 16th stock reveal video, I'll be doing a deep analysis of Coca-Cola, my 10th largest dividend stock by portfolio value of the 25 I own. That's right, we are into the top 10 now. That means that after this, I only have nine stocks to go. Stay tuned for details of my dividend portfolio along with screenshots of the Starbucks and Pfizer dividend checks I received after I released my McDonald's video last week. Also, if you are somebody who likes to taste the feeling, then please lick that thumbs up button. And don't forget to attend my Live 5 Stock Talk, where I'll be premiering my ninth largest dividend stock by portfolio value on Fridays at 5 p.m. Pacific. Please drop by my channel and say hi during that live chat with me. And if you are one of those folks that doesn't love Coke, then you can always check out the timestamps in the description below and jump straight to my portfolio. Now I just passed a thousand subscribers this week, so as a thank you to the community, I started a Dividend Discord channel to give you the ability to come talk directly with me whenever you want, as well as chat with others in the Dividend community. The chat has been way more fun than I anticipated. Some folks prefer to use text to communicate, and others like to chat voice over IP. Some folks join Discord from their phones, and others are using their browser. To join it, you can click on the description in any of my videos, or you can use your smartphone and then put in the code that I'll share in the invite input field. So it's capital C, lowercase r, lowercase r, lowercase p, the number 2, capital R, lowercase n. So C-R-R-P-2-R-N. We talk about a bunch of things in there from dividend stocks to various companies to investments to random stuff like people's jobs or diets or movies or whatever. All I ask is to be nice and refrain from topics that will trigger people. Use your judgment. I want to create a fun and collaborative atmosphere where folks that are passionate about dividend investing can go to chat real time with others who share that interest. We have complete newbies in there as well as experienced dividend investors and everything in between. There are lots of ways you can reach out to me, including in the comments of my videos, over email, Twitter, Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Reddit, and now Discord. You can also just join the Discord channel and lurk if you want. It's fine to not type anything or say anything if you don't feel like it. Okay, another message I want to get out there is, if you haven't started your investing journey or just starting, then I want you to know you can do it. You can become wealthy. The secret is simple. Invest in quality companies consistently at decent prices over a long period of time while remaining pragmatic about your budget. Don't make the mistake of not starting to invest because you're scared you're going to lose money. Don't make the mistake of cashing out your 401k. Don't make the mistake of taking on credit card debt. Don't make the mistake of not having an emergency fund. Don't make the mistake of relying just on your job for income. Don't make the mistake of trying to get rich quick. Treat your investing like a marathon, not a sprint. Don't chase fast returns. You'll get burned. But I am supremely confident you can become wealthy. I've found that if I invest and keep investing, especially when times get bad, things eventually turn out okay. There will be crazy swings, but your confidence in your companies will steady that ship. Okay, now it's time for another deep analysis. Coca-Cola, ticker KO, is a 133-year-old, $32 billion revenue, 
$272 billion market cap American beverages company that is sold in more than 200 countries and territories and employs around 63,000 people. They are the world's largest non-alcoholic beverage company. There are only two countries in the world that don't sell Coke. Can you guess what they are? Well, the poor folks of Cuba and North Korea don't get to enjoy Coke products. Perhaps tensions would ease if everyone just popped open a can of the good stuff. Now, according to Warren Buffett, Coca-Cola has no taste memory, which means, like water, a person will never get sick of it. He once said, if you gave me $100 billion and said take away the soft drink leadership of Coca-Cola in the world, I'd give it back to you and say it can't be done. Coke owns and markets four of the world's top five non-alcoholic sparkling soft drink brands, which are Coca-Cola, Diet Coke, Fanta, and Sprite. I love Diet Coke. It's my favorite soda in the world. There's nothing as good as a refreshing ice-cold Diet Coke on a hot day or after you've eaten some salty snacks. Coke itself is the most widely distributed product on the planet. It has so many different beverages that if you drank one per day, it would take you more than nine years to try them all. Coca-Cola has a product portfolio of more than 3,500 beverages across 500 brands. 1.9 billion of their brand servings are consumed every day. Now what Coke does is simplistic if you look at it from 100,000 feet. They manufacture syrup concentrates, which are then sold to around 250 bottling partners around the world that get the concentrate and then add water, carbonation, and they package it. Like I was mentioning, they own many amazing drink brands beyond the Coke drinks, spread across five categories. Sparkling soft drinks, juice, dairy and plant-based, water and sports, tea and coffee, and energy. The brands they have include Barks Root Beer, Dasani, Dunkin' Donuts Coffee Drinks, Fanta, Fresca, Fuse, Gold Peak Iced Tea, which my wife loves, Hanson's, High C, Honest Juice Drinks, Honest Tea, Minute Maid, Odwalla, which we buy every week in my house, Powerade, Seagram's, Simply Juices, Smart Water, Sprite, which my kids love, Surge, Tab, and Vitamin Water, amongst others. Of all those various types of drinks, sparkling drinks represent the majority of their volume, and Coke branded drinks represent almost half of their volume. In terms of geos, the U.S. represents 18% of volume, which means that 82% of their volume comes from outside the U.S., so Coke is more of an international play than a U.S. play, which is awesome. The largest international consumers are in Mexico, China, Brazil, and Japan, which together accounted for 31% of worldwide volume per their 2018 10K. So they market, manufacture, and sell beverage concentrates, sometimes called beverage bases, and syrups, including fountain syrups, which they sometimes call their concentrate business or concentrate operations, and finished sparkling sodas drinks and non-alcoholic beverages, which they call their finished product business or finished product operations. Generally, finished product operations generate higher net operating revenues but lower gross profit margins than concentrate operations. So it reminds me of how McDonald's makes more revenue from the restaurants they own and operate, but they make more profit from the franchisees. Thus, their finished product operations generate net operating revenues by selling to retailers or to distributors and wholesalers. And then they also generate revenues by selling concentrates, syrups, and certain finished beverages to authorized bottling operations, aka their bottlers, or their bottling partners. Their bottling partners either combine the concentrates with sweeteners, depending on the product, still water, and or sparkling water, or combine the syrups with sparkling water to produce finished beverages. The finished beverages are packaged in authorized containers, such as cans and refillable and non-refillable glass and plastic bottles, 
bearing their trademarks or trademarks licensed to them, and then are sold to retailers directly, or in some cases, through wholesalers or other bottlers. In addition to the beverage brands they own, they also provide marketing support and participate in the sale of other non-alcoholic beverage brands through licenses, joint ventures, and strategic partnerships. So most of their branded beverage products are manufactured, sold, and distributed by independent bottling partners. However, from time to time they acquire or take control of bottling operations, often in underperforming markets where they believe they can use their resources and expertise to improve performance. So Coke is organized into six segments. Number one is Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Number two is Latin America. Number three is North America. Number four is Asia Pacific. Number five is bottling investment. And number six is global ventures. Let's review who the significant institutional holders of Coke stock are. The top institutional shareholder of Coke is Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, holding 400 million shares valued at over $20 billion, followed by Vanguard Group and BlackRock. The largest insider I found was Kent Mutar, their former CEO, with 2.2 million shares. That means his shares drip around $3.5 million every year. Not bad, Kent. Not bad. Okay, let's see how the key non-alcoholic beverage industry leaders are, ranked by market cap. So number one is Coca-Cola at a $231 billion market cap. Number two is Pepsi at $189 billion. Number three is Keurig Dr. Pepper at $44 billion. And number four is Monster Beverage at $32 billion. Coke owns about 17% of Monster, so they're not really a competitor. Now everyone knows Pepsi, but not too many people know about Keurig Dr. Pepper, ticker KDP. So I thought it'd be fun to use them in this analysis. KDP is at 11 billion revenue, 44 billion market cap, American beverage and beverage maker conglomerate. The majority of KDP is owned by Jab, aka Joe A. Benkiser, which is a privately held German conglomerate. KDP was formed last year in July of 2018 when Jab, which had previously taken KDP private in 2015, used that and cash to buy Dr. Pepper Snapple Group. So now KDP is the third largest US-based non-alcoholic beverage company behind Coke and Pepsi. It is the 10th largest beverage company in the world. Keurig Dr. Pepper has a portfolio of more than 125 owned, licensed, partner, and allied brands, many of which you know and love, including Pete's Coffee, Kahlua, Dr. Pepper, 7-Up, A&W, Canada Dry, which is my dad's favorite ginger ale, Hawaiian Punch, Orangina, and Yoohoo, amongst others. Okay, let's review the industry. So Coke is in the consumer staple sector and is in the beverages industry. Let's look at where Coke and KPD are on the Fortune 500. Coke is ranked at 100 and Keurig is ranked at 409. Let's look at the Fortune brand rankings. So here are the top 10 most valuable brands in the world. At the top is Apple, followed by Google, Microsoft, Facebook, and then we find Coke holding the number sixth most valuable brand in the world. Amazing. I can't stress how powerful that is. Now let's jump into a brief history of Coke. Coca-Cola's story starts with a military man. Colonel John Pemberton was wounded in the American Civil War and supposedly became addicted to morphine, and so he looked to find a substitute. He created a wine that apparently included the African cola nut, which gave it caffeine. And then there's a debate whether it included cocaine from the cocoa leaf. In 1886, when Prohibition was passed, he created Coca-Cola, a non-alcoholic version of his wine. Dr. Pemberton's partner and bookkeeper, Frank Robinson, is credited naming the beverage Coca-Cola, as well as designing the trademarked distinct font, 
still used today. He called it a temperance drink and sold it in soda fountains for five cents. Drugstore soda fountains were popular in the United States at the time due to the belief that carbonated water was good for the health. It was said to cure headaches, hysteria, melancholy, morphine addiction, indigestion, and impotence. Pemberton sold the majority of his beverage business to Asa Candler for $1,750. And then another man, Joseph Bidenhorn, who was selling Coca-Cola from his soda fountains in Mississippi, started putting Coke in bottles, and within five years, Coke was being sold via large-scale bottling efforts. The various bottlers agreed that they needed to standardize their packaging and give Coke a distinctive bottle, so they made what became the curved Coke bottle that was recognizable even in the dark. After this, Coke kept expanding and growing internationally. And one fun fact is that Coca-Cola helped shape the classic Santa Claus you think of today. In 1931, an ad exec wanted to show a wholesome Santa who was both realistic and symbolic, so they commissioned an artist to draw him, and that's where the chubby-faced, white-bearded Santa that we all know and love came from. In 1941, the U.S. entered World War II, and the demand for Coca-Cola from U.S. soldiers serving overseas increased tremendously. Now, one interesting question is what the secret formula is for Coke. Some people have claimed they know it, but they never seem to be able to replicate the taste exactly. There is a myth that only two executives at Coke have access to the formula, with each executive having only half the formula. Some people say that each exec knows the entire formula, and other execs know the formulation process. Whatever it is, I love it. Okay, let's look at some of their business strategies. I think it is super critical to understand a business's strategies to either solidify your belief in an investment, or a potential investment, or to help you walk away. Coke has five key business strategies. Number one, accelerating growth of a consumer-centric brand portfolio. Number two, driving the revenue growth algorithm. Number three, strengthening the Coca-Cola system. Number four, digitizing the enterprise. And number five, unlocking the power of our people. One of their most important strategies is to further digitize their systems. They want to number one, create more relevant and more personalized consumer experiences. Number two, find ways to create more powerful digital tools and capabilities to allow their retail customers to grow better. And number three, digitize their operations through the use of data, artificial intelligence, automation, robotics, and digital devices in order to increase efficiency and productivity. Coke is a marketing machine. They are aligning their marketing strategies to number one, drive volume growth in emerging markets where they're investing in infrastructure programs that drive volume through increased access to consumers. Number two, to increase their brand value in developing markets, which are markets where consumer access has largely been established. They are driving towards differentiating their brands. Number three, to grow net revenues and profit in their developed markets, where they continue to invest in brands and infrastructure programs. In a recent presentation Coke did, they called out a few of their overall strategic themes, which included number one, becoming a total beverage company, number two, creating a platform for sustained performance, and number three, delivering shareholder value. I found these slides useful to understand some of Coca-Cola's perspectives on growth potential. On the left, we see that in developed markets, they only have a 1% share of the hot beverages market. The hot beverages market is 14% over the overall beverage markets in developed regions, thus lots of growth potential. They have a 21% share of the cold beverages market. That market represents 46% of the overall beverage market in developed regions. And then on the right, we see that in developing and emerging markets, Coke only has a 0.3% share of hot beverages. That market represents 9% of the overall beverage markets in the DNA regions. They have a, an 11% share of the cold beverages market. 
That market represents 15% of the overall beverage market in DNE regions. So these are great growth opportunities, and it helps us understand the importance of their Costa Coffee acquisition they closed earlier this year, which is the world's second largest coffee chain. And then this shows us how they dominate in various categories of sparkling soft drinks, where they are number one, juice dairy plant, where they are number one, hydration, where they are number one, tea and coffee, where they included their iced tea, putting them at number one, and energy, where their partial ownership of Monster puts them at number two. Those slides are important to help understand where additional growth should come from. Speaking of growth, they are also pursuing innovation to expand their beverage portfolio, exploring new ingredients and personalization options. So new ingredients means new flavors of your favorite drinks, which I love seeing. And then they also are evaluating more compelling sizing and packaging. They are also using a strategy called test and learn, which is an iterative product operations process, i.e. they try something new, they push it out there, analyze the data, and then rinse and repeat as makes business sense. They will also probably be doing more consumer-centric M&A to continue their beverage dominance. A core strategy they started in 2013 was called Vision 2020 and was a refranchising effort with their bottlers. To me, this refranchising was a move to become more profitable at the cost of squeezed revenue. Bottling is a low-margin, capital-intensive business, so instead Coke can focus on the concentrate, which is their higher-margin core competency. So as consumption of carbonated drinks continues to slow down, especially in developed markets, this allows them to attain higher earnings at the risk of the market freaking out about revenue declines. But their growth strategies should also start helping their revenue grow, so I wouldn't be surprised to see revenue and earnings both growing again at a better clip. I see this as a bit similar to what I talked about happening to McDonald's, where they realized their franchisees were more profitable at running restaurants than themselves, so they took the hit on revenue to get better net income. So returning bottling operations to the bottlers makes sense to me, as they know that business the best. Okay, let's jump into the financials. There are four key financial areas I like to understand when I'm analyzing business, and they are number one, is the company growing? Number two, can the company cover what it owes in the next year? Number three, do they have too much debt? And number four, how's their profitability? Let's start with number one. Now there are six main things I like to review when answering the question, is a company growing? And they are number one, is revenue growing? Number two, are earnings growing? Number three, is equity growing? Number four, is cash flow growing? Number five, is the dividend growing? And number six, is the stock price growing? So let's start with number one of six, is revenue growing? So for Coke, I see they've been on a gradual downtrend from 2013 until late 2018, and then they turned it around, much like we just discussed about refranchising and their new growth initiatives. It has taken years to refranchise in order to become more asset light, which is often a goal of many companies. So while I don't like seeing revenue decline or debt increase, long term I feel they're doing the right moves, and I always play for the long term. It's also natural for companies to breathe and the pendulum will swing in one direction for a while and then it'll, hopefully they learn and it swings back in the opposite direction. So they might go from being a more centralized organization to being a more federated and then back again. It's like how we outsourced programming in the early 2000s because it was seen as a commodity, but now the pendulum has swung back and we are insourcing programming because it's seen as a key differentiator. And I guarantee at some point down the road it'll go back the other way. Perhaps when AI is good enough to do the programming for us. These are all normal things that can actually be healthy for businesses, as long as they learn. Though if you're observing from afar, you might wonder WTF is going on. So I think strategic moves like this make sense, given the context. A mega trend which should negatively impact soda consumption are healthier millennials. Thus, Coke is adjusting by focusing more on their water, juices, and coffees. 
KDP looks great here other than the trendline break in 2018. Both Coke and KDP have 2020 revenue estimates that are increasing over their 2018 numbers. Let's understand Coke's revenue breakdown a bit more. Here we see a trend that concentrate is becoming a larger percentage of their volumes while finished product is lessening. And that is what we would expect based on the analysis we have done. Let's see how their net income is trending. So just glancing at it visually, we see that earnings have turned around and are trending up as of late, as makes logical sense. Coca-Cola's net income for the 12 months ending September 30th of 2019 was 7.7 .7 billion, a 176% increase year over year. Keurig Dr. Pepper's net income for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was 1.1 billion, a 22% increase year over year. So other than a brief dip in late 2017, early 2018, Coke looks solid here, and KDP has a fairly good trend line as well, other than in 2009. Now let's understand Coke's operating income by segment. We see that Europe, the Middle East, and Africa represent about 43%, and then Latin America, North America, and Asia Pacific are all in the ballpark of one another at around 27% each. We see bodily investments and corporate eat up a combined negative 24%. For Coke in 2018, fluctuations in foreign currency exchange rates unfavorably impacted consolidated operating income by 6% due to stronger US dollar compared to certain foreign currencies. The decrease in operating income in the US was driven by things like higher freight costs, amongst others. Beyond just focusing on growth, Coke is also looking to cut costs to help the bottom line. We can see that their stock-based compensation has trended down in 2018 relative to 2016, and their selling and distribution expenses have significantly gone down year over year, as have expenses overall. The decrease in selling and distribution expenses during 2018 reflects the impact of refranchising activities throughout 2018. The decrease in other operating expenses during 2018 reflects savings from their productivity and reinvestment initiatives, amongst others. Okay, on to number three of six, is equity growing? Coke's shareholders' equity most recently was $20.7 billion, compared to KDP's at $22.9 billion. I like KDP's gradually increasing shareholders' equity as opposed to Coke's, which was trending nicely until 2014, but it looks like recently it's gradually ticking up again. Okay, let's move on to the all-important free cash flow. So number four of six, is cash flow growing? To answer the question, is a company growing? Please watch my Southern Company video if you want to learn more about cash flow. Now I pulled this data from Morningstar. We see that Coke's free cash flow has been rising since 2017, and the trailing 12 months is a significant step up. This is good to see, because when free cash flow and the dividend payout are upside down, I start to get concerned. With KDP, we see a nice trend starting in 2016. Coke also has strategies to improve the all-important free cash flow, which is why I think Coke's future looks bright. Okay, now let's move on to number five of six, is the dividend growing. Coke has an amazing 56-year history of consecutively growing their dividend, making them one of 27 companies in the world which is a dividend king. It has a dividend trend line of beauty. Some people admire sunsets, I admire trend lines. Okay, I like sunsets too. With KDP's interesting history of mergers and acquisitions, I didn't feel their dividend history was worth showing. One interesting item of note was that when Keurig Green Mountain and Dr. Pepper Snapple merged last year, Dr. Pepper Snapple shareholders received a special cash dividend of $103.75 US dollars per share. That's awesome. Coke is a good three-year dividend cadger of about 5.7%. Coke's five-year dividend cadger that I calculated is at 5.57%. 
Coke's 10-year dividend cadre is 7.8%, which is around what I like to target for a 10-year dividend cadre. So Coke's 10-year estimated yield on cost is a low 5.15%. Coke's 20-year yield on cost is a decent 13.4%. Coke's 30-year yield on cost is a good 28.5%. Of course, the odds of them hitting this are unlikely. Coke's payout ratio is a high 76%. And as always, don't use any of these numbers to make investing decisions and double check all info presented. Now let's see other shares outstanding have trended over time. We see that Coke went from 4.8 billion shares to 4.3 billion, which is about a 10% reduction in 13 years, which is decent. KDP was reformed recently, so not much data here. But we see they went from about 800 million shares to 1.42 billion, a 180% increase. Let's look at some share repurchase info from Coke's 10K. So this shows millions of shares were repurchased last year at an average price paid of around $48 with over 30 million left to be purchased under the plan. I think Coke is slowing down their share repurchases a bit and instead will focus more on acquisition opportunities. Okay, let's look at their total returns. So let's compare Coke to KDP and to the S&P 500 using Dividend Channel's total returns drip calculator. This models what would have happened if you invested 10K around 12 years ago into Coke, KDP, and the S&P 500. It used 12 years because that's the extent of the data that was available for KDP. We see that with Coke, your investment would have grown to about 27K, which is a 170% return, a bit lower than SPY that would have taken you to a bit over 28K, 185% return. But both fall way short compared to KDP, which would have gotten you to 90K, which is an 800% return. KDP had an interesting lineage. They were Green Mountain Roasters from 1981 to 2014, and then Keurig Green Mountain from 2014 to 2018, and then it joined into KDP. So perhaps not an ideal apples to apples comparison. This is a graph Coke had in their 2018 10K, which shows how it fared since 2013 compared to the S&P 500 and their peers based on a $100 investment. This shows Coke would have taken you to $135 by 2018, a 35% increase, which is more than their peers would have done, which would have taken you to $128, a 28% increase, but less than SPY, which would have taken you to $150, a 50% return. Let's move on. So number two, can the company cover what it owes in the next year, which is asking if it can cover its short-term debt obligations. I like to use the current ratio to determine that. It's important to compare ratios in the same industry. A ratio higher than one indicates that a company will have a high chance of being able to pay off its shorter-term debt, whereas a ratio of less than one indicates that a company may not be able to pay off its shorter-term debt. So the higher the ratio, the more liquid the company is. I like to see ratios between 1.5 and 3%. We see that Coke's current ratio is 0.92 compared to an industry median of 1.38, and it is ranked lower than 76% of the companies in the non-alcoholic beverages industry. We see that KDP's current ratio is 0.35 compared to the industry median of 1.38, and it is ranked lower than 98% of the companies in the non-alcoholic beverages industry. If you want to see one of the higher current ratios out there, check out Monster. The number three main item I like to look at when analyzing a business is if it has taken on too much debt using the debt-to-equity ratio. We see that Coke's debt-to-equity is 1.5 compared to the industry median of 0.47 making it rank lower than 93% of the companies in the non-alcoholic beverages industry. I don't like to see that. KDP is at 0.57 compared to the same industry median 0.47, making it 
making it rank lower than 66% of the companies in the non-alcoholic beverages industry. If the ratio is greater than one, the majority of assets are financed through debt. If it's smaller than one, assets are primarily financed through equity. I'd like to see between one to 1.5. A high debt to equity ratio is often associated with more risks as it often means a business is pushing for fast growth with debt. That being said, the appropriate debt to equity ratio varies depending on the industry because some industries use more debt financing than others. Capital intensive industries often have higher ratios. Okay, let's see if we think they can cover their interest payments. So let's see if EBIT is at a reasonable level. Looking at their latest EBITs on macro trends, we see Coke's EBIT is at 9.3 billion and KDP is at 2.2 billion. I normally like to see EBIT greater than or equal to three times net interest and checking their income statements, I find that both of them cover. Okay, the number four item I like to look at when analyzing a business is to understand their profitability. Let's look at return on equity or their earnings power. Normally I expect to see 10 to 15% to cover their cost of capital and make money for shareholders, but the more the better. ROE tells us how much profit a company makes for every dollar it has of shareholder equity. So ROE is the income that is being generated as a percentage of shareholders equity, also known as book value. We see that Coke's ROE is at 39% as compared to the industry median 9%, which means they rank higher than 97% of the companies in the non-alcoholic beverages industry. That's awesome. KDP is around 5%, below the industry median of 9%, which means they rank lower than 61% of the non-alcoholic beverages industry. Not so hot. Okay, let's look at another measure of profitability, return on assets. RA will tell us how efficiently a company is squeezing profit from their assets. Return on assets is a measure of how well a company takes all of the money it has and uses that to make more money. It's a metric which is used to calculate management's effectiveness to understand how much profit a company earns for every dollar of its assets. ROAs over 5% are generally what I look for. The higher the ROA, the higher the asset efficiency. Here we see that Coke's ROA is a healthy 8.9% versus the industry median 4.2%, which makes them ranked higher than 71% of their industry. We see that KDP's ROA is 2.3% versus the industry median 4.2%. They're ranked lower than 63% of their industry. So Coke is looking decent here. The next profitability we'll look at is net margin. Net profit margins vary depending on the type of industry you're in. Watch my previous videos for more details. We see that Coke's net margin is an incredible 23% versus the industry median, which is only around 6%, and they are ranked higher than 95% of the companies in their industry. KDP is doing well at around 10% versus industry, which is at 6%, ranking them higher than 78% of their industry. And this is an example of why people love to invest in Coke. 23% net margin. I mean, think about it. Their workhorse is basically water with a yummy patented syrup added to it. Of course their margins will rock. By the way, someone asked me why I use net margin instead of gross profit margin. The reason is because gross is the difference between revenues and cost of goods sold, which then leaves a remaining margin that is used to pay for overhead admin expenses. Net margin is the remaining earnings left after all expenses have been deducted from sales, so I find that metric more compelling. Okay, let's look at one final profitability measure I like looking at, which is earnings per share, or EPS. EPS is a company's profit divided by the number of common shares outstanding. EPS shows how much money a company makes for each share of its stock. A higher EPS often means that people will pay more for a company due to their higher profits. You also might want to calculate diluted EPS rather than basic EPS. Here we see a nice trend for Coke, other than that dip in early 18, which they rebounded from. 
their TTM EPS was $1.80, about a 170% increase year over year. Keurig doesn't look as good as their TTM EPS is an 80% decline year over year. Okay, let's move from their financials to their community involvement, charitable giving, and their environmental, social, and governance work. Coke has strong roots in sustainability. They have a variety of goals they are shooting for, including replenishing 100% plus of the water they use, driving towards 100% bottle and can collection by 2030, continuing to reduce how much sugar is used in their beverages, reducing carbon 25% by 2020, and a variety of others. They are also big into charitable giving. They founded the Coca-Cola Foundation in 1984, and since then they have given back more than $1 billion to enhance the sustainability of local communities worldwide. In fact, and I think this is amazing, the company is committed to giving back 1% of its prior year's operating income annually. That is awesome, and I've not seen many companies of Coke's magnitude doing something like that. In 2017, they gave back more than $138 million to benefit nearly 300 organizations across 70 countries and territories. The main areas they focus on are, number one, empowering women by enabling economic empowerment and entrepreneurship, number two, protecting the environment via enabling access to clean water and by doing water conservation and recycling, and number three, enhancing communities, enabling education, youth development, and other community and civic initiatives. They also support programs like HIV AIDS prevention as well as local arts and community programs. When natural disasters strike, the Coca-Cola Foundation and the entire Coca-Cola system responds to offer emergency relief. Through the Coca-Cola Matching Gifts Program, eligible employees make personal contributions to qualified organizations and the Coca-Cola Foundation matches those contributions on a two-for-one basis. So that is awesome. Thumbs up. You rock Coca-Cola. Okay, now let's move on to their executive leadership team. Their exec team has an average tenure of about 20 years, which is incredible. I had a sub I was chatting with who mentioned that one of his most challenging things they had was figuring out if a management team was good. I agree, that is tough. One thing I found is helpful to do is not just focus on what makes a management team awesome, but look at also what makes a management team bad, and then use that as a red flag when you're investing. So are they constantly missing their estimates they give to the market? If so, that's a red flag in my book that the management team isn't too strong. I also like to see companies that promote from within, as it usually means the management team really understands the business they're in. I've had some bad experiences when management outside the industry is hired. So I usually take hiring from the outside as a red flag, even though outsiders can sometimes shake things up in a good way. Another example, is the management team good at PR or are they bad? Are press headlines speaking positively of what the company is doing or negatively? So beyond just looking for tenure or identifying ghosts in the management's closets, there are a variety of ways I try to assess a company's management team. Let's look at Coke's CEO. James Quincy is their chairman and CEO and is a 23-year veteran of the company and most recently was their COO. He previously led the Europe region and expanded their market share during his tenure. He played a significant role in the creation of Coca-Cola European Partners, one of the largest independent Coca-Cola bottlers in the world. He was part of the team that acquired Innocent Juice in 2009, and he was president of the company's Mexico division from 2005 to 2008, where he led the acquisition of Jugos de Valle. He joined Coke as a director of learning strategy, and then moved into a slew of other roles before landing the top spot. So a neat way to get to CEO. Prior to joining Coke, he was a partner in strategy consulting at a company that was a spin-off of Bain and & Company and McKinsey. So this guy is what you'd call a brainiac. Okay, one way we can assess a CEO is on how his stock has done since he has taken office. 
I'm not including KDP in this one because of the change they went through. We see that Coke has performed slightly worse than the S&P 500 at a 41% return versus a 47% return. That being said, I see the CEO taking good strategic steps which will take a bit of time to cultivate, so I'm still very happy with his results. Okay, let's jump into concerns and risks. There are a variety of risks that I feel are important to be aware of. Understanding the risks to your investments is one of the most important things you must understand. A key part of the job you have with your portfolio is risk management. Coke carries a decent debt load. They use debt financing to lower their cost of capital, which should increase their return on shareholders' equity. That means the risk they face are adverse changes in interest rates, and their interest expense may also be affected by their credit ratings. One potential risk is a relatively new megatrend that seems to be happening, which is that people are paying more attention to their health, and there are more social pressures against sugary drinks. Thus, obesity and other health-related concerns may reduce demand for some of Coke's products. So, Coke needs to continue to adapt with changing customer expectations to continue to maintain and grow their customer base. However, this trend isn't happening in less mature countries, where much of their sales come from. Another risk they face is of currency headwinds, since a significant portion of their revenue isn't in the US. Weather conditions are another risk. Their drinks are somewhat seasonal, with the second and third calendar quarters accounting for their highest sales volumes, with sales somewhat affected by weather conditions. They source their orange juice and orange juice concentrate primarily from Florida, so freezing weather or hurricanes in central Florida may result in shortages and higher prices. Speaking of commodity risk, a key long-term risk they may face is access to sufficient amounts of water. Water is their main ingredient in substantially all of their products. While historically they have not experienced significant water supply difficulties, water is a limited natural resource in many parts of the world and may become continually more scarce as population growth continues. I mean, have you seen Waterworld yet? Think how bad things would be with no water or coke. Tied to commodities, it's possible that one or more ingredients that go into their drinks may have risks or issues tied to them that hurt them down the road. I'm not aware of any, but it's a potential risk I thought worth mentioning. Various impacts to their supply chain could impact them. For example, increasing prices or decreased supply of key materials they need, such as packaging, aluminum, food ingredients, etc., could all harm them. Changing energy costs could adversely impact their massive system. Under difficult economic conditions, consumers may seek to reduce discretionary spending on their products. Beverage quality and safety concerns may have an adverse effect on their business. Trade secrets are an important aspect of Coke, and their sparkling beverages and other beverage formulae are amongst some of the most important IP they own. So somehow that leaked out. Information technology system failures or interruptions or breaches of network security may impact their operations. Changes in tax laws and unanticipated tax liabilities could adversely affect the taxes they pay or their profitability. Increasing regulatory issues may adversely impact them. Litigation or legal proceedings could expose them to significant liabilities and damage their reputation. I recommend you look into it if you're so inclined. Of course, they have many competitors that are seeking to take market share. Those are some of the risks I thought of but dive into their details if you're so inclined to be more thorough. So big question, is it worth buying at today's price? Let's look at the results from the DCF calculator on Guru Focus to see what it estimates. We see that it finds Coke fair value at about $19 versus a stock price of $53. So this guesstimator says its margin of safety is minus 182% right now, which says Coke is overpriced. 
it has K2P's fair value at about $8 relative to its current stock price of $31, which gives its margin of safety at minus 270%, so it says that KDP is also overpriced. Let's look at how their PEs have trended over time as another gauge of how pricey they are. Watch my previous videos to learn some nuance about PEs and what I expect to see in different sectors. My generic rule of thumb is I get more compelled to buy when PEs are under 15. Coke's PE is a spendy 29.7 compared to the industry median 20.5. Its PEs rank lower than 72% of their industry. KDP's PE is an even spendier 39.7 compared to the industry median 20.5. So both of them are too pricey. Coke's forward PE looks a bit better at 23.8 and KDP's is at 22, but I'd still like to see both of them lower before I'd get compelled to invest. Watch my AVI video if you want to learn more about the S&P 500 PE ratios. Okay, another final trend that you might want to look at is how their dividend yield has trended over time as an input into your buying decisions. Here are the last 10 years of dividend yield trends for Coke. KDP doesn't have an accurate history on seeking alpha, so I'll skip that. Coke's dividend yield on the day I made this was 3%, a tad lower than the 3.25% starting yield I like to shoot for, generically speaking. KDP's yield is even lower at 1.97%. If you want to learn some nuance on how I would read this chart, then watch my Kimberly Clark video. We see here that Coke's yield has been trending sideways for almost the last decade, which I read as its relative value has stayed around the same. Okay, let's look at what analysts at MarketBeat said about Coke and KDP. So Coke's consensus rating's a buy, its consensus rating six months ago was a hold, Share price today is $53.11. Consensus price target today is $56.37, which is plus 6.1%. And its consensus price target six months ago was $51, which is plus 3.66% from today. For KDP, we see a consensus rating of a buy. Consensus rating six months ago was a hold. Share price today is $30.50. Consensus price target $30.34, which is 0.38% down. Its consensus price target six months ago was $28.28, which is 1.72% down from where it is today. So that basically means that analysts think that Coke is underpriced today with a 6% short-term upside, and they've gotten more bullish lately as their current targets are higher than they were six months ago. So awesome. We see KDP at about where they expected it, though more are bullish than they were six months ago. Let's take a look at insider trading. So we see a variety of transactions here by their officers and directors, but nothing jumps out as disconcerting to me. Please watch my Southern Company video if you'd like to learn more about how to read a form for dealing with insider trading. So what's a good price for Coke? When did I buy it? So as I've mentioned in previous videos, most of my stocks I bought in the 1990s and held most of them until I recently sold them. I then got back into certain stocks recently. It's a crazy story I'll tell you in the future. So I bought back into Coke again in August of 2018 at $44 a share. I took positions in both my tax sheltered account and my brokerage account. Right now I feel that Coke is overvalued. Too much debt, not enough cash flow, too many macro risks. So I'd want to see it in the low 40s to get excited. So what do you think? Are you a bull or a bear on Coke? Are you going to buy, sell, or hold? Okay, let's review the portfolio starting in the pie chart. So this has Coke added in it. So we see consumer staples food beverage, the blue here is about 13% of the portfolio. Consumer discretionary is at 
Consumer staples, household products at 17%, utilities 10%, the green here, energy is about 11%, industrials 11.5, and healthcare around 9. Financials are around 6.5%. And we see that I have 1,610 shares, almost 11 shares of Coke. We see it's trended up in the last 365 days. Current PE 29.9, forward PE 23.7, EDM $17. Pays an annual dividend of $1.60, and the next pay date's in early January. Current dividend yield is almost 3%. The three-year dividend cadre is 5.7%. The five-year dividend cashier is 6.8%, and the 10-year is an awesome 7.8%. Manually, I calculated the five-year dividend cashier at 5.57%. So the portfolio's average weighted five-year dividend cashier is 8.23%, and the portfolio's average weighted starting yield is 3.27%. I have $86,667 worth of Coke which brings the portfolio value up to $667,000 and Coke drips $2,577 a year, bringing the passive income so far up to $21,821 a year. Payout ratio is a bit high with Coke at 76%. Got a ton of dividend data, 56 years of consecutively increasing their dividend. And we see that the portfolio's average weighted years of increasing dividends is now at 36 years. It is an aristocrat. In fact, it's a king. Beta is low at 0.43. So the average weighted beta of the portfolio is 0.71. Okay, the market cap is nice at 231 billion, which brings the portfolio's average weighted market cap to 131.6 billion. Okay, now let's review my Starbucks and Pfizer dividends I received since last week's McDonald's video. So I edited out my account numbers here, and I wanted to clarify something for brand new investors. Sometimes on YouTube you'll hear people say something like, Robinhood paid me or M1 paid me. What's actually happening is that the company that your dividend check came from is the one that's actually paying you, and your brokerage firm like eTrade for me acts like a useful middleman to help enable those transactions along with some other companies under the covers. Anyways, I want to make sure that you understand that one broker isn't inherently better than another in the perspective of the amount of cash you are receiving from dividend checks. Okay, so I hold Starbucks in a tax-sheltered account. Last week, I received a dividend check for $125.08 from Starbucks, which pays quarterly. Since I've turned on my drip for Starbucks, it bought another 1.5 shares of itself taking me from 305 shares to 306.5 shares. So this quarterly dividend payout just increased my annual passive income by about $2.46 a year. Assuming they don't increase their dividend, then this would mean that just by holding Starbucks in my accounts, my annual passive income will increase by $9.84 a year. But it'll be higher than that since it compounds quarterly and because I believe they'll increase it. Next, I received a dividend check from Pfizer. I hold Pfizer in a tax-sheltered account. Last week I received a dividend check for $164.82 from Pfizer, which pays quarterly. Since I've turned on my drip for Pfizer, it bought another 
4.3 shares of itself, taking me from 457.8 shares to 462.1 shares. So this quarterly dividend payout just increased my annual passive income by about $6.19 a year. Assuming they don't increase their dividend, then this would mean that just by holding Pfizer in my accounts, my annual passive income will increase by about $24.76 a year. But it'll be higher than that since it compounds quarterly and because I believe they will increase it. Let's see how this looks in the spreadsheet. So this is a copy of the dividends I received in November of 2019. I've blacked out the, the dividends of stocks I received that I haven't showed yet. So you can see that on 11.15 from Colgate, I got a dividend for $279.98, and I uh, got one from AbbVie on the 15th for $506, and et cetera. Here's the Starbucks one that I talked about, $125. And then we also have, these are the December dividends, so of the stocks that I've revealed. So Pfizer is the one I just mentioned, $164.82. And then later on in this month, I'll be getting Southern Company, Chevron, Exxon, McDonald's, Home Depot, Disney, Goldman Sachs, and Travelers. So I'll just keep on filling in this monthly um, tracker. And then I have a copy of a quarterly tracker where I've blacked out some of those. So in October, I received dividend checks from Coke totaling $639.64. So that means the next Coke payout will be in January, since it's every three months. And for December, here's that $125 that I received from Starbucks. And then here is the $164.82 from Pfizer. So just of the stocks I've showed so far, we see that in October for those stocks, I received $1,563 of dividend checks. In November, 993, and then so far in December, 289. Remember, don't forget to comment down below and include your partner number, which is the number of my videos that you have watched from start to end and commented on. With this Coke video, I'm partner 23, because I've watched all of my videos from start to end. Also, please hit that thumbs up button as that helps to promote this video on YouTube and is a great way you can thank me for making this free content. Thanks. Remember, I'm not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I'm only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments. Don't use this information without double checking it and talking to someone a lot smarter than me after you completely understand it. So I'll see you in the next video, and remember to stay positive, patient, play for the long term, keep investing in great companies, budget reasonably, and win. I know you can do it. Just like I know you can hit the subscribe, like, and bell icons, share this video with others, and comment below.